Are you interested in cities as beautiful monsters? What do you think about consciously choosing your city to live in? How can be our procrastination regarding climate change a good thing? Stay tuned for answers from Luis Natera. What is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation that this is the right place? Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. Today, I will interview Luis Natera, a software developer and geospatial network scientist. We will talk about his vision for the future of cities, urban improvements, car electrification pros and cons, urban choices, and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Luis Natera is an architect network scientist focusing on understanding cities from the complex system perspective. He earned a Bachelor in Architecture and Master in Communication of Science and Culture at the Western Institute of Technology and Higher Education in Guadalajara, Mexico. He holds a PhD in Network Science from the Department of Network and Data Science at the Central European University. He was a visiting research fellow at Center for Civic Media at the Media Lab of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Luis has experience working in the private and public sectors. His academic research interest revolves around urban mobility in multi-complex urban networks, bridging urban planning and complex systems. Luis currently works as a software developer focusing on climate tech. In his free time, he enjoys writing a newsletter about cities and technology. And with that, Luis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for your time and appearance on the podcast. Let's jump right in. What does the future of cities mean to you? Thanks, Fanny, for having me and inviting me into the podcast, first of all. Excited to be here. What does the future of cities mean to me? It means a more human city. It means a city that it gets rid of cars. It means a city that um, doesn't go the electric car route 100%. It means a city that it's available for anyone, for anyone, for everyone, for all of us. It means a city that it's safe, that it's convenient, that it's sustainable, not only adapts for climate change, but also adapts to reduce emissions from the city and from the inhabitants of the city. It is a city that is welcoming to everyone. I think that's also quite interesting from my personal experience as a migrant, the fancy term in English expat, but to be honest, I'm a migrant because I'm from Mexico and now I live in the Netherlands. And before that, I was living in Budapest for four years. So I have been migrating for some time. It also puts some perspective on how do I see cities and how do I feel welcome in different cities. And it also puts some different lenses on myself when I go back to Mexico and I experience my hometown. Now not as a full-time resident in Mexico, but as a visitor for a couple of weeks in Guadalajara. I see a city that it's... It is safe not only in terms of getting mugged in the street, but it's also safe in terms of walking in the city in the middle of the night or walking in the city as a child or walking as a, in the city as an elderly person and just have the freedom to move around and don't have to be afraid that a car can come and run over. For me, that's the future of city. Probably some of these things are given bank granted in some cities, especially in the global north. But in some other cities, it's something that we're still struggling to figure out and to get to that place. For me, that's the future of cities. And it's a future that I hope to see sooner than later. 
I'm very optimistic in the future of cities and in that we're going to get all our things together and figure out the challenges that we have ahead as humanity. And it reminds me of some tweet that I saw that it said, okay, procrastination is good because at some point we achieve the task that we were going to achieve in five hours. We achieve it in one hour because we have a hard deadline and we need to do it. And I think as humanity, we might be in some sort of procrastination, but also reaching this tipping point that uh, we need to act and we need to get our things together. And we need to figure out how to do it. It's pretty exciting also to start seeing like these things that are happening all around the world and these movements and so on. Now I will say that I'm an optimistic that we can figure it out. Of course, it means that from time to time you see these bad things popping up in different cities or in different places, but it's also kind of like, okay, if they're popping up, it's because we're actually also doing something on the other hand. Now we have the knowledge to push back for these uh, negative things that might be coming. So your living experiences are very, very wide ranging. Can you express what does the city means to you based on your experiences? Yeah, that's a good question. What does the city mean to me? It means home. It means home in the sense of it is a place that I feel comfortable. It is a place that provides some shelter in some sense. It means also a place that it's a reference or something that ties me into or grounds me into the world. Cities also means friends and friendships because now I have to say names of cities with people and with different experiences that I have lived in different cities. So it also has this human component. It is not just about this monstrosity. I always say that uh, cities are this kind of beautiful monsters when you see it from up space because they are huge when you see them like landing from a plane or one of these uh, satellite images. My mind goes crazy thinking like, okay, I get to work with these monsters and I get to work with these beautiful things try to make them a little bit more sustainable. And I tend to see this us human beings as ants living in cities and moving and having this kind of random behavior that, of course, it is not random. And there are like a bunch of uh, rules that we follow and a bunch of very predictable as uh, human beings and how do we interact in cities and the trips that we do and so on. It is a fascinating thing to think about cities, to think about how they have evolved from being this conglomerate of humans doing some commercial activities. And now cities are becoming these knowledge hubs that we know and that we use them for being close to other people, like-minded or also with different mindset, but that can challenge us and that can inspire us to do something new. Also culturally wise, cities had these different flavors or feelings, flavors in sense of flavors in food also. That's also something that I really enjoy about traveling and getting to know new cities and flavors in the sense of uh, how do we experience the city and how do we experience different cities? Like from the cows in a Latin American city with a bunch of cars and street vendors and so on, that it's beautiful because it means that it's a city that is super active and it's super like people are actually in the streets. And to some cities that are like a little bit more home and some cities like Amsterdam, where I live at the moment. It is also a chaos in a sense when all the bikes go around, and but it's also a beautiful one. It is the first time in my life that I have enjoyed being in a traffic jam, in a bicycle traffic jam. It is an amazing feeling to be in this kind of rush hours and feeling fellow humans on the side and not just feeling cars on the side or to be surrounded by 
1,000 kilos of metal or whatever around us. It brings also the scale of a more human scale. And for me, those are cities. This feeling also about how do we experience different, even climate in cities. It's something that are associated with more and more with living abroad. I remember the first time living in Budapest. Yeah, just seeing how the nature changed in the city. It's something that we don't have in Mexico or we don't have it as marked these stations as in Mexico. Just having this sense of time in a city and even how the light changes. It is an incredible thing. And also seeing the transformation that we're able to do. I remember living in Budapest when the pandemic hit it and having the Korut moving one lane of cars and making it into a bike lane. Like this ability that we have as humans to adapt, to change and to see, okay, now we understand that probably traveling altogether in public transportation might not be the best idea. So let's encourage people to bike and let's retrofit some street and start doing something. Of course, it also comes with some pushbacks, right? Especially when it's removing the street lanes from the street, people tend to get a little bit not so happy. Well, some of them, some of us, we tend to be very happy when that happens. It is fascinating to see these transformations of cities and to cities. And so cities also means change. It also means new opportunities. It also means that we're not still in time and that we can, can act, we can change them and we can improve them and we can improve our lives as a society. Such a beautiful picture you painted about cities being beautiful monsters with the beautiful chaos with community and the opportunity to conscious evolution for a better future. That's just beautiful. You lived in a lot of places. Because of this, I would assume that you consciously chose your place now. Did you consciously choose your place now? Yes and no. It is also some serendipity how we ended up in, well, in Europe first and then in Amsterdam. Amsterdam has been a city that has fascinated me and my wife for a long time. The first time that I visited Amsterdam was, as an architect, it was an eye-opener. And as an architect interested in urban mobility, it was like, this is amazing. You can move around by bike and so on. Yeah, living in Amsterdam, it was a conscious choice. But Well, we moved first from Mexico to Budapest for an academic opportunity for the PhD. And then while we were living in Budapest, we had this opportunity to come to Amsterdam because of my wife's job. So we said, okay, let's take it because it's an amazing one. It was a conscious choose to live in the city that we live. It has a lot of streets in the city that we like and that we were looking for. Because where we live in Mexico, I was heavily involved in some community organizations and trying to promote make Guadalajara a bike-friendly city to make it not so car-dependent and so on. So I think it is not just choosing the place where I want to live, but it's also choosing how to build the place in the world where I want to live. Because otherwise, the way that I see it is like, or there's also this pushback coming, like when trying to promote bike-friendly cities, one of the usual comments all around the world, I will say, it's, Oh, but we're not Amsterdam. You cannot bike here. Or it is not a sustainable city, so you cannot do it. Or we don't have the best climate. Come on. The Netherlands doesn't have the best climate either. It's super windy. It's cold, rains and snows, and then the sun shines in everything in the same day. And still, people bike. And people bike because it's convenient and because the infrastructure is sustained to make more convenient biking than moving by a car. 
for me, the idea is how can we build these types of cities? And what can I do from my personal experiences, from my work experiences, with my abilities, with my knowledge, try to steer the city where I currently live towards this ideal that I have of a city. I don't know, it might be a little bit naive trying to move like a whole city towards one ideal, but I think having these pushes makes people to move a little bit and to not get stuck in something. And I think it's a good thing. And it is a way to build the future of cities that we want to see or the future of cities that at least I want to see. If I can put a little bit one grain of sand in towards that direction, let's do it, no matter where I'm living, because that's the new face of the monster that I want to see. That's amazing that you moved beyond the general people choosing where to live, because you're not just choosing where to live, you're choosing where to live because you want to help that city to become something more, and you see the potential to do that with yeah. your help. That's amazing. <laughs> and it's really, really interesting that you mentioned previously that people look like ants in the city, because I don't know whether you know at all about swarm intelligence. There is the notion in swarm intelligence called stigmergy, when one individual agent's action will influence the whole system's behavior, which in turn influences the other agent's action. So what you just described that your pushes will push a bit more people into some direction, that will definitely happen. It has to start somewhere. More and more people doing these kind of things and what you're doing with the podcast, what the different people were doing in different places. And it's like putting these seats or... I will say now it is not just putting the seeds, but like actually, because probably the seeds were put since a long time ago. We're just collecting some of these uh, fruits already. I mean, even from Jane Jacobs or even from Richardson. There are a bunch of people that have been working in these fields. And now it's time to kind of make the final pushes. Well, I'll see optimistic on my side. Make some extra pushes <laughs> to try to move the city into the direction that we want to see. If you agree, I would like to go back to this optimistic view because that we are at the point where we have to change, that's not a common reason to be optimistic, <laughs> I would say. It's more of a reason, as I see, to be pessimistic. Is your natural attitude to be more optimistic? How do you see this kind of necessity to change and think that, Even though we haven't changed until now, this is the time and we will do it. How do you do that? I think it's, I wouldn't say that I'm by nature optimistic. I have grown in, or at least since I am conscious, I have been hearing about crisis all along my life. In Mexico in 1994, we have a huge economic crisis because some devaluation of the currency. Then we had the 2008 crisis, uh, the economic crisis all around the world. Then we had COVID three years ago, or I'm speaking as a past, but it's still present. It's a little bit this weird feeling. Now we have been hearing this economic recession coming in our way since last year. It is a little bit like, mm, okay, is it really coming, not coming, what's going on? And then I studied architecture. Architecture is usually not the, it is a profession that is in crisis or has been in crisis for such a long time. Usually it's more a romanticized profession. Then 
we have heard climate change for also some time and the weather crisis for some time, some natural crisis for some time. I guess this kind of crises also present some opportunities for adaptation and change. And for me, that's the way that how I see it. And that's why I'm optimistic, because we have overcome such a lot of things that I'm sure that we can pull it together. We have the technology at the moment. We have the knowledge, the scientific knowledge. We have economic resources in the world to pull these things off. Of course, the economic resources, they might be not very well aligned because there are some other economic incentives uh, aligned in some other areas or whatever. But I think it is there. And the boom on climate tech and people working more and more in climate tech, it is quite interesting. I was listening to a podcast early in the week with a recruiter working on recruiting Python developers. And they were asking, like, okay, do you see a trend on where people want to work? And he said, yeah, I see that people, developers, are looking for companies that are working into the climate tech space or tech for good space. So it seems that there is this trend, at least in the experience of one recruiter, that uh, developers getting more and more into the doing something for good or doing something for the climate. And this mindset makes me quite optimistic that we can put it off and that we can not just adapt the cities, but improve the cities. Because there is also this notion about how do we make cities climate resilient, but that's also assuming that we need to make them just resilient to cope with the effects of climate change. But in my view, we can actually do better, and we can actually use cities as a way to fight climate change, to start reducing emissions, to start capturing water. There are a bunch of things that we can do. I mean, it's way more sustainable to have people living in cities in dense areas and so on, right, than have uh, people living all around the world. Because the energy that we need to move resources from one place to another, it is a lot of energy. If we can consolidate cities, I'm optimistic in that sense. I think there are different good examples that it's possible to do it. The most famous one, Paris, with the push of um, Anne Hidalgo, Carlos Moreno with the 50 mil cities, so on the new retrofits that they are doing for building bike lanes and so on. The case of Budapest, it was impressive to see how it was changed from one day to another certain areas. Amsterdam removing thousands of parking spaces for cars and allocating it for other activities. So that's something that I'm very positive. On the other hand, we also have some cities that we don't have to leave behind. My hometown, Guadalajara, it is a city of 5.3 million inhabitants. It is the second or third largest city in Mexico. But currently, they are discussing there is like this huge avenue going from like it crosses most of the city and is one of the main roads that takes people out of the city into the countryside. And they are discussing if they want to build a second story highway. It's an absurd discussion because it seems that we haven't learned anything, that we are trying to solve problems using 1970 approaches. And of course, 1970 approaches, we have some things that came in a good sense, but this is just focusing on trying to move more cars and not trying to move more people. And how can we move more people, not cars? That may be the biggest question. So I'm optimistic in one sense. I also think that we don't have to let the optimistic lenses cloud our vision of some of the realities that might be happening in the world and that we need to also look back and say, hey, we can do better, and how can we help to do better? That will be my, where I'm standing on the optimism <laughs> side. Two things 
going beyond resilience is, in my understanding, called anti-fragility. We have a summary of anti-fragile on the podcast in episode 20. The other thing I wanted to say is it's really interesting that you brought up Paris instead of Amsterdam as a good example, because for me, Amsterdam seems a really good example of how to involve people into the Amsterdam Smart City project and how to include them and find problems to find solutions for. Franz Anton Fermas talked about this approach in episode three, how he and the project itself is trying to create a smart city for Amsterdam. I do agree that Amsterdam is doing something amazing, but I think I was referencing more on the Paris side because Amsterdam is already at the top of the top on how we can build human cities. Paris is one of these cities that um, was a motorized city and they are having a big push on how do we retrofit this in our current life. And while Amsterdam had this big transformation in the 70s, 80s, and they start pushing more on the bikes and so on. I mean, the whole country, as Netherlands, start pushing more on that, on that area. Not just Amsterdam, but the whole country. It is an impressive piece of engineering and operation on a bunch of levels. Of course, it has some challenges. Just to think about the new bike park they created or the two new bike parks that they created in the central station. It is a city that is investing millions of euros to build parking for bicycles. I guess if we're going to pitch this idea to some other mayors that you're going to invest millions for parking of bicycles, they might not be so happy because it also comes with some political interest. At the end of the day, the investments that um, cities do, they also come associated with some votes on the next electoral cycle. It is a shame, but it's at least in how most cities it works. And it is also this kind of how to educate that seems like very top bottom, but like more how do we engage in a conversation as a broader public to pitch different ideas, different ways of thinking, to come together as a society and see, okay, what's the future that we want? What are the problems that we're facing now? And how can we solve them? Let's think a little bit about Latin American city, my home city. We have this new highway that they want to build. And the problem is that people need to move from their place where they live to the place where they work in the center in, or in the city. We can figure out different solutions, not just building a new highway. How can we start, how can we engage in a conversation that we acknowledge from the different sides? We have a problem, we have an issue, and we need to figure out what's the best solution for this issue. It also requires some humility from the urban planners or experts, quoting with my hands <laughs> about these experts and urban planners and so on. At the end, the people who are also experiencing the pains are experts in their needs. And we need to acknowledge this. We need to acknowledge the different behaviors and the different experiences that people have in the city to then come together and try to solve them in the most practical way and the most human way possible. Of course, taking into consideration different topics. Let's say we don't want to keep polluting. We don't want to affect vulnerable communities and so on and so on. But it requires these conversations. And usually these types of projects are not going to go or they are not going to happen in two, three years or just before the next election come on our way. Because we need to think that the politicians tend to inaugurate these kind of big projects 
just before the election cycle comes into place. So that actually reduces the conversation or the planning stage to just a couple of months. And then all of the energy goes into building the new things, then to be ready just before the election cycle. And I guess that's also why I started the newsletter, because I wanted to start engaging into some conversations that goes beyond and that it goes a little bit more about this is what is going on in the world. This is what is available. How can we make it more approachable, not from a scientific point of view? I mean, the science is there. There are papers coming every week talking about these topics. But to be honest, how many people are going to read it? I know that a bunch of us, we're going to read it because we are urban geeks and we're very into the topics. <laughs> we really like these things, but we also need to engage. That's also kind of a self-criticism on my scientific self. How to engage in this broader conversation? How do we move beyond the peer review paper? How do the science that we do or that we did can go and have broader impacts? And I think that's where this project, having podcasts, having newsletters, doing some appearances, writing, or engaging in having social media, engaging in Twitter, LinkedIn, it makes these ideas permeate into society and it allows us to engage us into more broader discussion. What are the three biggest fears or concerns regarding the future of cities for you? The first one is going full speed on the electrification of cars. I think it is completely needed to move from gasoline to electrification of cars. 100% agree. But I don't think electrification of cars are going to make our cities more friendly. At the end, okay. they're going to be cars. There is this meme about having a traffic jam of gasoline cars and having a traffic jam of electric cars. At the end, it's a traffic jam. And then at the end, we're having these 10 square meters to move one or 1.3 persons in average in a city. It means that how can we, having this push from the cities to start giving some tax breaks on electric cars and so on, I think it's something that we need to do, but it's also something that we need to do quite carefully. And we need to really think about what are the consequences of going full speed on this direction. While on the other hand, giving subsidies for electric bicycles, it has a positive impact. And we're seeing that there are, if the program was on Detroit, there is this program that they're giving subsidies for electric bicycles in the US. And it's been such a success that now the people are asking for bicycle infrastructure because they realize that it's not safe to bike in the current infrastructure. So now the government also getting pushed to go into this direction. For me, it is a beautiful example because it shows like how we can modify some behaviors. Yeah, putting some the economic incentive in the right place can also have some trickle-down effect into the city. And it helps people. And it is fascinating to see to see these um, tipping points. So for me, that will be one of the biggest fears will be to go full speed into electrification of cars without taking into consideration bikes, without taking into consideration public transportation. That's something that has been left on the side. I'm sure that they might they can come and they will come some innovation in public transportation services. There are a couple of companies doing kind of public transportation as a service. This idea behind Uber or these ride-hailing apps, but now for public transportation, that they are not just kind of an Uber share, but a little bit bigger with fixed routes, but a little bit 
dynamic routes that can adapt depending on the demand of the people based on an app and so on. So there are some innovations that might be coming this way. That would be one. The other one is climate change and especially urban heat islands. That's something that I think it is kind of a low-hanging fruit on how to solve it. Not the climate change, the urban heat islands. The climate change is not a it is not a low-hanging fruit. But the islands, I think that's something that we're not taking too much attention on what's the effect of having these super big parking lots or concrete areas and what's the effect on absorbing heat and then reflecting the heat. Trying to tackle that problem, that's also I think it's a little bit left on the side. And also the impact of climate change have in vulnerable communities, homeless, people who need to travel long distances to get to their jobs, or yeah, people who need to travel long distances and then they cannot do remote work. They are the ones who are going to start experiencing more and more the climate change effects and the super high and super low temperatures, weather phenomena, and so on. That's something that is a little bit scary to think about in the future. It's something that we're seeing it more and more nowadays. The lack of snow this winter in Europe, it's frightening. We have seen a lot of pictures of people going skiing and that it's not super snowy. It is bad from the sport perspective and recreational perspective, but the true bad comes after that. Like, what's going to happen when we don't have snow that is going to get melted and it's going to go into the rivers and start putting water into the fields for food or hydropower and so on? That's also something that is going to start playing some role in cities. It's a challenge that we're going to start facing more sooner than later. We will need to think as humanity how to solve these big challenges. The same comes with geopolitical disputes, the war in Ukraine at the moment. What's the impact of this? Yeah, it is a terrible conflict, nonsense conflict, but it's going to also put some extra pressure on the supply chain of food. It's going to also put some other pressures in the whole interconnectedness of the world. At the end, I think cities nowadays more than countries or the way that i see it is that now we have this kind of network of municipalities or network of cities rather than network of countries and we have similarities between cities and cities acting kind of uh, interacting between them and it's going to be quite interesting to see how are we going to adapt as uh, cities in this interconnected world although you have mentioned so many already what are the three biggest opportunities regarding the future of cities for you? The first one, I think, is that cities can be at the forefront of figuring out how to deal with climate change, not just how to deal in sense of how to adapt, but also how to improve or how to improve the conditions and start being subpollutant, figuring out how to use resources in a better way, figuring out how to be more welcoming for people more welcoming for nature and to start putting this in cities as a center of a city. I think there's a big opportunity to really put back as the center of the city, the human beings and to think about humans and inhabitants of cities, not just from the engineering perspective, but how do we optimize cities to move people or to be more effective on X and Y and Z but more about how do we care for humans? How do we make sure that humans have a place to connect? I think there are these opportunities on how to create communal spaces, especially nowadays working remotely and where people tend to get a little bit more isolated. 
and I am one of those because nowadays I work mostly remotely. But I do enjoy also going to the park and seeing some people and this experience that I was narrating before, being in a bicycle traffic jam. It is beautiful because it makes you feel part of a community. These kind of things are even small interactions in the city. I think I wrote it in the blog about having this sense of community and belonging into a city or into a place. For me, that was the moment that I started interacting with my local barista and that he knew me and we started chatting. And of course, they're not super in-depth chats, but it's knowing someone in the neighborhood. And the same with the local fruit and vegetables shop. But uh, we see each other in the street and we just say, hi, hi. And it is this kind of putting the people in the center. And it's something that we cannot have when we think about cities in this or services in cities in a super big scale. Yeah, of course, probably you can get to know in a supermarket, but we're missing this kind of hyper-local spaces that tie us to, to our communities. That's something that I think we can build towards and something that makes me quite optimistic. And I mean, even there is this story about Barnes & Noble, the bookshop in the US. They start closing a lot of bookshops because, of course, Amazon got in the way and so on. And then they had a new CEO. What he has done is to start motivating the local employees in the bookshops to have the bookshop as they want and to make it as personal as they want and to recommend the books that they want, not the books that the big companies are pushing toward. And it actually helped a lot in the business side because people went to the bookshop, started getting books that were recommended by a fellow human and not by a corporation trying to push something. It was a nice way to start reactivating these kind of communal spaces. That's a big opportunity that I think we have in the future coming our way. I think a new opportunity comes in mobility, as we're talking about these tax incentives ongoing for bikes, electric bikes, and so on. The whole bicycle industry got completely disrupted during COVID because people started biking more and more and more. It is great. It is fascinating that we're having such demand going into this space and that people start realizing, okay, it is actually fun to bike in a city and it's possible to do it. Some of urban designers and urban planners are starting to talk about how we are placing too much attention on humans and completely, or not necessarily completely, but regarding less the environment. In your human-centered approach, where does environment fit in? For me, it is part of the human environment. It is not we just put humans as the center, but humans, we need environment to be complemented. And we're part of that. So it comes hand in hand. It comes also taking into consideration the fauna and flora that we can put into cities. It comes in how do we make sure that the cities are respectful of what we have around us. It is not just putting in asphalt and parks just in the sense of having some a couple of trees and some grass that people can enjoy. But how do we make sure that the flora that we're putting into parks actually helps the animals that we have around us? The pollinators that might need to come or the birds that are flying, going from north to south, depending on the rhythms of the migration and so on. It comes in this holistic view. If we just plan for the human-centric approach in that sense and putting just the satisfaction of the persons, I think we will end up building highways again or hyperloops and just disregarding everything and saying, yeah, yeah, because it's convenient for the humans and we're optimizing for them. 
yeah, optimizing for humans also means having nature around us. It also means having pollinators. It also means experiencing the four seasons all along the year. I mean, it is fascinating to see how trees change along the season. And it brings this mindset that even though we live in cities, there is a whole world of nature outside of a city, outside and inside the city. How do we make sure of that? How do we make sure to take that into consideration and start into the cities that we're planning? I don't have the answers, but I think it's something that it's part of the broader conversation. And it's part of this getting together as a society and start rethinking our cities, start rethinking how do we live in them and how can we improve them and how we can improve them, not just for us, but also for every species living in the city. Luis, you have been very generous with your time. As a before last question, although I could ask you for hours about your journey coming through so many different professions and then combining them into one, I think, enthusiasm. But as a before last question, what is your role in establishing the future of cities? My role, as I see it, it comes in different places. From a professional point of view, I'm a full-stack software developer working in climate tech. That's one of the roles, like putting my technical expertise, my knowledge into use to try to improve cities and the world in general, putting these different skills into practice to optimize for or to create something better. Then the personal role that I would say, it's also this curiosity-driven improvement of cities. It is this way of moving towards and working and actively towards a better city from different perspectives, from engaging in conversations, from talking with friends and family, from participating in the city life, engaging in some topics. That's the role that I see myself to be and to keep being curious for some time, to keep pushing my knowledge in different topics. I think as long as we're curious, we are going to keep moving forward. And as long as we have an open mind, it is way easier to start moving forward to build new things and to retrofit things and to get into a better place or a better and different place and to keep advancing. And we also shouldn't forget your newsletter because those are just very, very interesting snippets of knowledge themselves. Yeah, the newsletter was an idea to start putting together this knowledge and to put it out there, to start putting it as a way to share what I work on, what I have worked on, some different things that I have seen around the web, a place to engage in a broader conversation. So if you're interested in the newsletter, subscribe. You can go into the webpage luisnatera.com and everything there. Luis, thank you so much for your time. Do you have any other closing comments or requests for the audience? Thanks, Fanny. Yeah, I think just keep being curious about cities, keep being active in the community. I think Curiosity-driven minds are going to move us to uh, different places, to better places. And it is a joy to be in these kind of spaces and to start exploring and to be curious-minded. Thank you very much, Luis. It was really interesting to hear from Luis about cities as knowledge hubs because of the conglomeration of people. Not to mention his interest and expertise in urban mobility and its dangers. Professor Hussein Dia in episode 48 also discussed transportation in detail. 
You can find out more about Louis online. All the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding Louis' approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this interview? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the WTF4Cities.com website where the transcripts and show notes are available. You can also subscribe on the website not to miss any new episodes and leave some feedback. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in. What is the future for cities podcast?